All right, tonight we are going to persist, continue, press on in our study here of Revelation 13. And last week we established that... Huh. Okay, that's not going to be very helpful, is it? Hey, John, run down to the basement there and get me my markers, please. Run, that's not fast enough. Oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> my physical prowess has greatly diminished in the last five days. This Thursday, our men's fellowship, they're going to slaughter me no matter what we play. <laughs> I'll just stand there and go, yeah, good shot. Because <laughs> I'm not moving. All right. Um, we're going to, we have established uh, some foundation for uh, interpreting these symbols. Uh, and again, we did not derive these from our imagination, but from the Old Testament where they were explained. So we derived our symbol in, in chapter 12. We're going to do the same thing in chapter 13, which we did last week. And we're going to try to carry that consistently through there in coordination with what the angel said to John in, uh, in helping him understand these symbols uh, in chapter 17. Chapter 17's focus, though, is really on the woman that we're really not told anything about in chapter 13. This woman that rides the beast. We're not really focused on her at all. It really represents another timeline that we're going to get to when we get to chapter 17. Um, but uh, we know that there is a woman involved here. She is a symbolic person, different than the woman we were introduced to in chapter 12. That woman was a representation of the nation of Israel uh, and the presentation, really, of the coming of Christ the Messiah. So we come into... Uh, this study, not looking um, to press it with our ideas, but with God's ideas out of the book of Daniel. Thank you. And so, let's see if any of these work. The orange one they'll never see. The blue one might. The brown one does. All right. And so, we come to the image of beast. And I'm going to use a capital B for the first beast. Um, and this is the, the, the we're gonna, let, let me just help you. This is the sea beast. This is the one that came out of the sea. And the sea was representative of the people's tongue nations, the world. And so out of the, the mass of society, we have this beast come out. And I'm going to use a capital B with this beast. I'm going to use a lowercase b with the second one. And uh, the reason being is because I, this is evident that this first beast that John sees in Revelation 13 is more than just one entity. Uh, it's described as having seven heads. And we're going to identify those heads. So we have seven-headed beasts. Uh, so we recognize that it has a history. And we looked last week at the fact that five of the... Four, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, five of those heads had already come and gone. They had already fulfilled chronologically their role. We're not really told that five of those heads are slumped over. Uh, John doesn't tell us that. He just says, I saw a beast with seven heads. 
and ten horns and crowns. And, and uh, he sees where its power comes from, and we're not really told a lot about it. But the angel's going to help us out in chapter 17, and he is going to tell him that five heads have fallen. I should do that over here at the heads section. So five are fallen heads. And of course, we identified those as five, not individuals, but of five nations or empires that had some things similar about them. One thing in particular that strikes us is the fact that each one of these had some authority um, over Israel, not necessarily the, the, the region of Israel, but the people of Israel, particularly the first one um, and maybe some of the latter ones. So, so we have five fallen. We can easily identify these if we go backwards. So let's uh, go back from where John is, um, and that would be Greece. That would take us beyond, be, on the other side of Greece to Persia. We could say Media Persia, um, the, the two-horned beast there. We go backwards from that. We come to Babylon. We go next behind that, and that would be Assyria. And we go after that, and you get into Egypt. Which really brings us to the beginning of uh, early, early stages of nationalities. Uh, And so you're going to find these are the five that have already come. They've already fallen. They've already fulfilled their role. Um, They were empowered, it says, by uh, the dragon. Um, that's the, 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 ultimately that the purpose of these empires is to move against God, uh, not to complete his uh, purposes uh, except by uh, default, by their, not by their active agency, but rather by God um, employing them to do his purposes. Um, we're going to star Babylon, because that one's kind of important, um, and these are a little bit more extensive. John is seeing a little bit more than what Daniel saw. Remember, we are in Daniel, and for Daniel, his vision of the beasts, little b, was fourfold. He saw four beasts coming. Um, he saw Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and then he saw one more, which was a terrible one, and it had multiple stages to it. And we're going to talk a little bit about that when um, we get to the current one. So these five fallen ones take us back even farther than Daniel's. Because Daniel really wasn't going historically. He was really starting where he was at, at Babylon, and pressing forward in time. But what God is giving John is really a view of the nations um, in regards to relationship with Israel uh, throughout all of the history of the nations. And so, of course, Egypt... Uh, had authority over the people of God, not the, the real estate called Israel, but the people called Israel. Uh, the Assyrians, of course, really focused on the northern tribes, but also penetrated the southern tribes except for Jerusalem. And then Babylon, of course, assimilated the Assyrian Empire, uh, pressed it further, reminding themselves that, hey, we saw a bunch of treasure um, in a city in, in Judea named Jerusalem, um, and if we want to fund our war effort, there's a great place to do so. And they did that. And so Babylon sacks Jerusalem not once, uh, but three times. And this is where Daniel's taken away, probably one of the early ones. Uh, and then Persia, the media Persians, of course, take over the Babylonian Empire overnight. 
Um, and, uh, of course, out of the Persians, we have the command to rebuild the temple under the Persians. Um, we then, later under the Persians, have opportunity to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. And so uh, the early stages were Zerubbabel and Ezra go back to rebuild the temple. Um, we also have then uh, Nehemiah with the permission from Persia to rebuild the walls. And then, of course, Greece with Alexander the Great then divide up into four generals. Um, and only one of those had a lot most dominance over Jerusalem and is the property of Israel and the Israeli people by and large. Um, but he did a great disservice. And this in Greece... In the Greek Empire is where we have the first manifestation of the abomination that causes desolation. Um, and uh, the first, and I'll just use this thing, the thing, the man of sin is a short and brief, shortened version of that, that the first uh, one. And that's Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes um, basically is, is uh, using Jerusalem as sort of uh, his sounding board. Um, whenever he gets beaten a battle, he takes it out on Jerusalem and the Israelites. Uh, he blames them. He went down to Egypt. He, they were trying to do some interesting things with marriages and stuff and uh, to deal between the two empires. Uh, and this would be during the Ptolemies of the Egyptians. And um, uh, he basically gets his himself uh, kicked out of there and defeated and he takes it out on Jerusalem and he sets himself up in the temple as God. And so um, he sets himself, he violates the temple and it's the first uh, desolation of the temple. And so when you hear about Hanukkah, Hanukkah, and the celebration is the, is the purification of the temple from this Greek man's uh, act that he violated that, set himself up and had pig sacrifice in there and just just everything he could think of to slap in the face of every Jewish person, every Israelite. And so it was uh, under the, the Maccabean revolt that they, that they were able to throw off uh, some of that and uh, re-consecrate the temple. Um, and that's what they celebrate when they celebrate Hanukkah, is that event. Uh, in the intertestamental period uh, during this period. And then comes the, the one that is. And so let's, we're going to head back. We're still in the seven heads. Um, the angel tells them that one of those uh, heads is. is In John's day, it currently existed. And that's it. So five fallen, five were. One is, and that, of course, is Rome. And uh, we know a lot about Rome out of Daniel. Uh, we, we know that it is, from Daniel's perspective, really the representation of the balance of the nations is under this broader category of Rome. But now the angel has told us that this isn't the last empire, but there are two more. Now remember, we said there were seven heads. We've got five fallen, one is, uh, and then it says there's one more, and then there's an eighth. That's what the angel tells him. So there's one to come. And then there's an eighth, which is of the seven. Kind of an interesting statement for it to make, to uh, explain to, uh, Dan or to John. And so we have the Roman Empire. Now, you might say, well, Daniel shows that the Roman Empire is the last one. 
And this is the reason in most prophecy teachers, what you're going to hear from them, and how many of you heard this? There's going to be a revived Roman Empire. You heard that phrase? Revived Roman Empire. Um, let's go to Daniel see where they get the idea of a revived Roman Empire. I agree. I have to agree because that's the way it is that Daniel doesn't go any farther than the Roman Empire. Um, but we want to uh, take a little look at it. So we're going to start not with Daniel's vision, but of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Okay, And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a, um, a, a vision and it's going to be uh, interpreted by Daniel. And so we want to uh, look at this vision. And that takes us to Daniel chapter 2. So what is the vision Nebuchadnezzar has? He has a, a vision. He doesn't want to reveal it. He wants to find out if his people really are up to mustard, and they aren't. And so they go and find Daniel. He wants them to tell him what the vision is, as well as its interpretation. We come into verse 31. And Daniel begins to explain this vision. It says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay, iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. All right, so we know the dream. He had a vision of this image, this, this statue, if you will, and the head represents one nation, and as you go down, you go through the succession of empires, uh, down into this, the last empire, which is drawn out for us. It's extended. Okay, let's look at it, the interpretation. All right, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. So we're... So while um, he's going to... Daniel's vision starts right here, Babylon. You, O king, as the, as the originator, really, of Babylon and its power, of, of the powerful Babylonian empire, um, you're the originator, you're the head and that's going to be key in a later vision that, that Daniel gets. And then after you is going to come someone that's not quite as great as you. And so they're going to come one not as excellent as you are, of inferior value. Here comes the Persians. And so the Persians, so here's the head of gold, and here's the Persians who are silver. And next after them comes the bronze, which is the Greeks. And so he describes them for us. Let's press on. Uh, in the middle of verse 39, uh, and then another kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces, shatters everything like iron that crushes, the kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. 
And so we have Rome introduced. And so we have a kingdom that's going to crush all the others. Um, it's just going to dominate. Uh, interesting that we go through some of the ages and, and Rome's development of iron uh, alloys and things like that was one aspect of their dominance. Uh, also their road building and other things, infrastructure they did that enabled them to move armies very quickly, faster than any other empire. Uh, they just dominate the scene. Now, you don't really find a lot after that. It seems like, well, we're at the lower regions of this statue and everything is derived now out of Rome. And so we know that the end of this is going to be a mixed kingdom. Let's look at this real quickly and see what it means. Whereas you saw, verse 41 is where I'm at in Daniel 2, whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So we know that by the time we get down to the toes, that the stone that no man made uh, that's going to destroy this entire structure um, is Jesus and establishing his kingdom. So because of that, and because of the connection, so, so we're at the, let's do the belt line, and uh, we come down and we have, <laughs> you're going to find out what kind of a drawing person I am. Um, we have these, uh, one, two, three, four, five. All right. It's not horrible, but I can never remember whether the pinky toes are on the outside. Anyway, so um, the kingdom comes into power up here. It's a single empire. It is then represented by two legs that are coming down. And uh, we can see the division of the Roman Empire really in the east-west, pretty simply there. And then it describes that once you get down to the feet, something happens. What happens at the feet? Well, um, it crumbles apart. Um, it's still the Roman Empire, but it kind of crumbles. It says the feet and toes were mixed up. They were mixed clay in. And so this empire that was, that was so dominant here is then divided two ways, into two camps, if you will. By the time you get down to the feet, they have been decimated by the addition of clay into them. There has been this degradation of the empire into um, something less than what it was. Okay? And by the time you get out to the very tip, the, to the toes, out here, now are, there's extreme weakness. Now we're divided ten different ways in addition to being divided two up here, in addition to being mixed in with clay. Now, I asked you, anywhere in this vision do you see a revival of the Roman Empire? I don't find it anywhere. It just keeps deteriorating, get worse and worse and worse and worse and more spread out and more disintegrated as you go down all the way out to the toes and to the last manifestation of that empire um, it's just totally disintegrated I see nothing that says all of a sudden the toenails grow out here as solid iron no iron toenails okay 
at the end, it is still it's multiply divided. It is disintegrated. Um, there are shards of iron mixed in with clay. Um, there's still some evidence of the Roman concept, the Roman principle of government, but it doesn't have its strength. It's solidarity. It is mixed up, it says, with the seed of men. That is, it's mixed up with a lot of other people groups. And so it's no longer like this morning we talked about Philippi, we're Romans. No, it's all mixed up now. And now we have this disintegration of it. And I find nowhere in prophetic material that the Roman Empire is going to be revived. And because people have convinced themselves of this, they keep looking to Europe, they keep lurk looking there, and they keep saying, well, the, the, there has to, and oh boy, when the European Union came together, boy, didn't we hear about it in the prophecy world? Oh, this is the, oh, I shouldn't have done that. This is the, re- <laughs> sorry, this is the revived Roman Empire, this is it! They were right there, it's going to happen. Well, well, that's fine until there was more than ten nations. Right? Because you're only supposed to have ten nations in the revived Roman Empire. And now, what are there, like 16? or I've lost track of how many are in there now. Um, the sad one was Greece. When Greece joined the EU, it was the longest continuous currency, the denarii, and uh, they gave it up for the euro. Um, anyway, uh, so now the European Union is much bigger, and it's, but it's also not doing what all the prophecy teachers said it was going to do. We don't find them having a single powerful individual ruling them. The nations still have their identity. And for me, they still have their kingdoms. And in prophecy, what is said is that the last ten kings will be waiting for their kingdom. They do not yet have a kingdom. We're looking for kings without kingdoms at the very end. We're looking for political, military-type leaders, maybe even religious, quote-unquote, Leaders looking for a place of reigning and they're waiting for the man of sin to establish his empire that will give them theirs underneath him. And so I see nowhere, nowhere do I see a revival of the Roman Empire. In every presentation of it, at, at its end of its run, um, it is divided, it is weakened, it is fractured. That's how it's always described. Never revived and rebuilt and re-strengthened. I, I can't find it in the Bible. And I've, I've looked at their passages. It's not there. When we go later on uh, in Daniel, if you want to jump ahead a little bit, and we're going to see Daniel's own vision. Remember, he had the vision of the four beasts, and then he had the vision of the two beasts, and the four beasts, only the last one captivated his attention. And uh, we were told that that was going to be the last one again. We're given a little extra history about the horns. And again, the evidence is that the fourth beast was going to be exceedingly dreadful at the beginning, um, but then it's going to be divided by ten. It's going to be divided again. And then there's going to be another horn come up that's going to displace three of those horns. And so it's the eleventh horn that we should be concerned about. And that's all given to us there in chapter 7 of Daniel. And so we don't find it dreadful at the end. We find it really... Kind of, we find an 11th horn sticking up that's going to overtake or displace, is probably a better word, 
is going to uproot and take the place of three uh, in some region. And so uh, I don't see any revived Roman Empire at all in Daniel. I don't see it evident anywhere. And, and so, um, but there has to be some aspects of Rome. Rome becomes a, a, a principle of rulership. The Roman principles are going to uh, be pursued. We're going to watch where did those Roman principles go? Okay, we're not focusing on real estate at this point we're, because we're already told that, that the, the empire of Rome is going to be fractured and it's going to be mixed in with the seed of men. So it's going to go all over the place. It's going to be intermixed with other peoples and other lands uh, or at least people groups. But the Roman principle is going to stay there all the way through. And so the seventh head and the eighth one to come have to have some kind of connection to Rome. They have to rely upon these Roman rules, if you will, um, for their governance, uh, for the structure of their society. uh, And and we're basically looking for things that are born out of Rome and yet not necessarily in Rome. We're not looking in Italy necessarily. Can you imagine how excited everybody was when Hitler and, you know, this is going to be the revived Roman Empire and uh, Mussolini was in there with that, which was Italy. No wonder you had so much... you know, this is, this is the Antichrist and the false prophet, right? With the revived Roman Empire. Um, and the swastika was a, a Roman thing too. And so you, you, you can see a lot of the imagery and the excitement build, but it doesn't correlate with how the Bible describes the end times. Particularly Daniel. And so Rome isn't really what the one we're looking for. That's the one that is... And in Revelation 17, if we want to go back there, didn't save my spot, should have done that. Um, we have in verse 10, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. So there's going to be another empire that was going to come after the days of John. It hadn't yet come. It's later than the Roman Empire. And then it's going to say, and then there's the eighth. Um, And uh, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, which is of the seven. So born out of these seven comes an eighth head. And we're going to talk about that here shortly. So you have one to come. So you have to find one in between. I'm going to shrink this down a little bit. So you have uh, five fallen the one is, and that is Rome. That's easy. So let's um, look at the one to come. So let's just categorize. Them yet to come. I'm writing on the board. Seventh yet to come. So what are we looking for? We're looking for a connection with the Roman principle. So we're governing not by real estate. We're not looking for the for association with Italy and the city of Rome. We're looking for the Roman principles. So it's government um, according to Rome. We're going to use their ideas. You guys do know the, the Roman government system, right? What is the Roman government system? Quickly, somebody. There's a republic. Um, it got twisted around here and there, and, and yes, yeah, some Caesars became God. 
But in its origination, and what made it very powerful, was not democracy. Democracy was Greek. That was Athenian. That was out of Athens. That was not out of Rome. Um, Our concepts of democracy, uh, of the majority rule, um, is out of Greece, not out of Rome. Roman government is a republic. That is that we have a specified citizenship. Out of citizenship, we have representatives who are seated in what the Roman called what? A Senate. Roman senators. And so, and they ruled and they determined that. We have a very powerful military and so we obviously have military prowess. Um, We also have this strong commitment to infrastructure that I already mentioned. Infrastructure. Uh, my brain went dead. Infrastructure. No, it's ER. URE. That's what it is. Boy, you should try spelling in front of everybody. It's really hard sometimes. Infrastructure. And so they were committed to building uh, elaborate roads, uh, water canals. Uh, uh, the building projects that you see Herod doing around Israel are typical of the Roman Empire. And go to those places and you can still see them there. That's why everybody wants to visit. Um, People are visiting the Mediterranean not because of what we've done since then. What they're visiting is all the stuff that was done during the Roman years. (laughs) That's what we're visiting. We're there to see the Colosseum. We're there to see the Parthenon. We're there to see the the Herodian temple walls, uh, the Wailing Walls Herodian. That's from the period of Herod. We're there to see Masada. We're there to see the stuff built during the Roman period. The aqueducts, those are all Roman. When you go and look around, um, by and large, overwhelming, what you're looking at is Roman infrastructure. And um, you go to Masada, it's incredible. They had hundreds of thousands of gallons of water they could store in that hill. Um, They had saunas. They had hot and cold running water. Yeah, Herod's palace was on a cliff. His wasn't on the top. His was on the side. He had a beautiful view of the Dead Sea and everything coming in from the north. Um, just incredible grain stores and stuff. That's why when all those Jews went up there to hide, um, they couldn't get them off of there. So they had to build siege ramps and they couldn't defend themselves against that, so they started using other Jews to build them. And the Jews on top wouldn't kill their fellow men, so they committed suicide rather than serve the Romans. So infrastructure was a big part of this But uh, we have these principles, but we also have the principle of a citizenship. The citizens have what? They have rights. We saw that this morning in Philippi, right? Paul says, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen, I have certain rights. Granted to me, not by God, but granted to me by Rome. In Rome, uh, if you had a citizen, you had lots of rights. And so we're looking for a, a empire to come that has these aspects, because this is the Roman principle here. This is Roman steel. This is their iron. This is, this is what, what made them powerful and devastating were all of these things. Um, we also have one other thing that we know is common to all these, and that is to have uh, rule over Israel. Right? So we're looking for a nation 
future to John, but hopefully past tense to us, because we want to be around during the eighth head, right? We want to be around during the eighth head, because that's the last one. That's the one that's going to go to perdition. That's the one that Christ is going to destroy. The one that is, is not, and is. Was, is not, was not, and then is. And so we want to be around here. So let's look between Rome and currently what empire that was supposed to rule the earth was going to be a, come a short time. It was going to have a relatively short um, uh, reign. Uh, how long did Rome reign? Do you know? Yeah, hundreds of years. About 600 years, five to 600 years, depending upon when you think Rome stopped being uh, an empire. Um, some would press that even a lot farther out. Greek, Greek empire, we often think of it just as Alexander the Great's uh, lifespan, but it divided into four, and we have a whole series of nations and, and we, an era that is attributed to that in each of those lands. And so when you look back at these, um, this, the idea of a short reign doesn't mean like a year or two, but rather that we can measure it um, maybe in less than a couple generations. We can measure it in a shorter period of time. This is not going to be a long reigning um, empire. It is going to be expansive though, and it is going to have authority over Israel. And it is going to showcase these aspects of Rome, and yet it's going to not be the Roman people, because it's going to be clay mixed in. So there's going to be other aspects of governing and a people and a real estate being added in. And so we're looking for something like this, and in my study of history, I can only come to one example that fit this all these criteria, and that is um, the Empire of Great Britain. It fulfilled all of these requirements. And by the way, the reason we have Israel today as a nation on earth is because of who? Great Britain. Great Britain is the one that had to uh, give permission for the nation of Israel to be formed. They were the ones that set that course in action. It was their mandate that was put into practice finally in 1948, but their mandate was really put out there earlier and signed off. And so, in response to the war, and the, they, the Great Britain established the, the current nation of Israel. They had the authority. They maintained that authority over the Middle East, uh, in, in large measures of the Middle East, uh, particularly in the Holy Lands, in uh, Palestine, as it was called back then. And so we find that uh, Great Britain had that aspect to it, um, the way that it's going to be destroyed, it says, is um, with a sword. That it's going to be for a little while. We're back in chapter 13 now. And we're going to find out that this manifestation of the beast um, is going to be mortally wounded. And so there's going to be, at the, at the end of the short rage, there's going to be a mortal wound. Um, he saw as one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. The deadly wound is healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, gave authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? 
who is able to make war with him. And we're going to go on and see some of the other aspects of what happened. And so Great Britain um, is going to fall as an empire and be revived in another form. It's going to be mortally wounded. That was, it's going to die. It's going to be put to death by a sword. Um, in in uh, other passages, we recognize that as really an act of war. And we find that uh, Great Britain fits that mold again. That having just really come to its powers um, for a pretty short period of time, um, Great Britain ruled the world, uh, it, mostly through its navy, um, but it, it had power over all the world. Uh, it had the most powerful naval force known to man. Um, it destroyed the Spanish Armada, yes. You guys are students of war at all. Um, and that's what was so phenomenal about the creation of the United States out of that was how in the world were you going to take on the British? How are you going to take on um, Great Britain? Which means the entire United Kingdom is their other name, right? The United Kingdom. And by the way, even to this day, the United Kingdom includes Australia, Canada, South Africa. You do know that, right? So the queen is their queen. So when the queen goes to Australia, you know, Australia is a different country, has its own government set up. She is still their queen. Same thing in Canada, South America, South Africa, um, and uh, a few other places. Belize, a few other weird places like that, where UK was once had great strength, and so um, it still has the manifestation. But something's going to decimate it, and uh, it's described as a sword. And uh, biblically, we're looking for a war. We're looking for wars that are going to decimate it, and we can see the effect of World War One and Two on Great Britain that essentially um, emptied it of people and emptied it of resources. But really, it was long before that that they lost the nation. And uh, historically, I think we can go back and look at the Napoleonic Wars and how Great Britain was taken over by the banks. Um, Just flat out taken over. Um, All because of one family that got word that Napoleon had been defeated they got that word way before anyone else. They had spies. They had, they had access to information. And information is power. And they used it. And this very wealthy family manipulated their resources to make it look like Napoleon had won. They pulled money out of the, of the marketplace. They were consolidating. Everything that they did, all the actions they did, told everyone who was watching them that they knew that Napoleon had won and that Great Britain was in trouble. And so every, the whole market crashed. The entire economy of Great Britain collapsed um, for about a few weeks. And during the collapse, this family, the Rothschilds, bought up everything, including the Bank of England. And then word came that Napoleon had been defeated. And by then, all the economy comes back up to power, but who owns everything? One group. One group owned it all. The Rothschilds owned the Bank of England. And even to this day, 
the queen pays taxes to the Bank of England. The Rothschilds. They run the country, essentially. And that is um, their perspective. And so, um, and we're going to see that replayed for us. And so Great Britain was decimated by the wars, the Napoleonic Wars. They really lost the rule of their country's economy. Uh, and through the means of World War I and II, um, they lost really the, the strength that they had to rule their entire empire. Um, they were just decimated by it um, financially. And now, basically, they owed their whole country, in, in every sense of the word, uh, to this one family, to the Bank of England. And uh, the Bank of England is not owned by England any more than the Federal Reserve is owned by our federal government. Private organization owned by, largely, by a family called the Rothschilds. And so, um, Great Britain fell. Great Britain was decimated. Um, but it's not gone. But remember, the seventh head doesn't go away. It stays around, but it's going to reform itself into a different kind of entity. But it's going to need some help. And that's where we come into the eighth head that we're going to look at next week. And so my contention is, is that um, five have fallen. Remember, we're, not, we're talking about the beast and his heads, and it can't be a person because its manifestation has this... Unless you find a person that's old enough to go all the way back to Egypt, that's as long as the beast has been around. We're not talking about the false prophet nor the man of sin, the Antichrist. These are not two people. And this is the dominant teaching today. Is that Revelation 13 is two people, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And it just doesn't fit. Here's what we've done. We have taken a beast to equal a person. And we've taken a horn or head to equal a kingdom. Horns equal... And it's the opposite. The beasts are the kingdoms and the horns are the people, the kings, consistently. Is the division within. And we have mixed this up and nowhere can I find anywhere where a beast equals a person with one exception. You know what the exception is? The exception is the Lamb, who is the person, Jesus Christ, who represents the kingdom of God. Much like Nebuchadnezzar represented the Babylonian kingdom. Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, that's technically an animal, a beast, but he also represents a kingdom, correct? A kingdom not made with hands. A kingdom that will last forever. He is the representation of a kingdom. So a king can stand for his kingdom. But I do not find anywhere in Scripture where a beast stands for the individual. Rather, for the nation. For the empire. For the kingdom. And because this one is representing of multiple kingdoms, I refer to it as capital B beast. It is the representation not just of one nation or empire, but of all the nations. So when you find in Scripture the reference to all the nations, I believe the prophetic imagery for that is the capital B beast. And I've used the term beast of beasts. That is that he is the the, manif- the, the culmination of all of these that are all described in, as, in beastly figures. And so, 
we are looking at the extension of the Roman Empire, not the revival of it, the extension of it in very weak manner compared to what it was. Um, we are now going to look at an eighth head that's going to come out of the seventh. It's going to be born out of this. going to carry this Roman rule. It's going to follow a, a authority over Israel. Um, and it's going to be the last one, the last empire on earth. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And that's going to take us farther into uh, Revelation 13. Because obviously John didn't see an eight-headed beast. He saw a seven-headed beast. So what's this eighth head that comes out of the seventh that the angel is talking about in Revelation 17? And I would contend that that's getting into the second beast, little b. Second beast. First beast is a capital B. It's the conglomeration of all of them. Little b beast is the eighth head. The second beast of Revelation 13, I contend, is the eighth head of the first beast. Okay? So stick with us. We're going to be out here next week and try to plow through some of this. We haven't really talked about the role of these. We're just trying to identify them. And then we're going to talk about the role of the seventh and the eighth head as we experience it and as it, we are called to come out from among them. Don't be a part of this. Don't accept the philosophy that's there. Don't count yourself as one of them. We're going to be having some instruction about beware. Beware. Look out for these guys. They're not the good guys they appear to be. Okay, Let's have a word of prayer. Get you out of here and then we'll go into our prayer time together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word and for its accuracy and for its reliability. That we do not need to um, wander into it with uh, our imagination, but rather we simply need to uh, look throughout your word and see it explained and then consider as we look around our world at uh, its fulfillment. And we do thank you for your the specifics that you've given, the, the information you've provided, and we rejoice in it. And we pray that you might help us to uh, receive the warning that comes with this information. That we can see the entities that are warring against you and be ready to stand with you and not with them. And give us that wisdom, Lord, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.